A reading from the Old Testament from Ezekiel. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and hid my face from them. Therefore thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in the land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. The word of the Lord. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his teaching. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his glory. And we pray that as we look at this teaching of his this morning, that you would give us insight and wisdom and that you would help us to meet you, love you, follow you. Amen. Have a seat. We all have our heroes. It's natural for us to look up to and emulate people. Usually our heroes end up being tied back to something that we love or are devoted to. Well, it's baseball season. It's beautiful outside. Every year I love having this game be something that, I can, that can provide me with distraction and entertainment. And it's every day. Some people think, every day? Yeah, every day. But the baseball season of 2016 was one that I will never forget. It had been announced prior to the season that it would be the last season for one of my heroes. Vin Scully, the longtime broadcasting voice of the Dodgers, would be retiring at the end of the season. He had begun broadcasting for the Dodgers in 1950. He was like a living family heirloom for all of us. He was the voice of Southern California. My kids, me, my wife, my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather had all listened to Vin Scully. So in that summer of 2016, each game meant something. And we savored every moment we could listen to him. And it became a farewell tour of sorts. All these different teams coming through Los Angeles, the players would want to go up to the broadcast booth to pay their respects to this icon. And the broadcasters, of course, who all looked up to him, they would go to the booth and do a short interview with him. And I don't remember which broadcaster did this, but one of them asked him, if you could have one person in a foxhole with you, who would it be? And Vin Scully answered, without hesitation, Jesus Christ. 
Now, from the years I had heard him, I knew that, Jesus, that uh, Vince Scully was a devout believer. But it got me thinking anew something that has been with me my entire life, a question I've had that I've been thinking about, and that is, who is this Jesus? What prompts so many people from all over the world to dedicate their life to him? How did a 30-something rabbi from Nazareth become a person that an Irishman who grew up in Washington Heights in Manhattan rooting for the Giants some 2,000 years later expressed such devotion to? The point of the Gospels as a whole, of course, is to answer that question. But I think we get a very striking answer in John 17. The tone Jesus takes here gives us a great opportunity to talk about who Jesus says he is and how large it looms over all of us and in the story of the scripture. It might not be news to you when I say that who Jesus is and what the gospels have to say about him and his divinity is a controversial topic. Millions of gallons of ink have been spilled about the gospels and how accurate they are. But at the end of the day, we have to reckon with what Jesus said. Because the more we learn about the Gospels, the more they seem to be an accurate representation of Jesus' life and teaching. Another hero of mine, C.S. Lewis, wrote in Mere Christianity what has become known as the Lewis Trilemma. It is prose at its most poetic, if I'm allowed to say that. Here it is. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We can find comfort and wisdom in Jesus' teaching, but we can also sit in awe of what he says and draw close to our Savior. The prayer in John 17 is at once an intimate dialogue of Jesus with his followers and a huge moment of teaching. Let's sit and look at it. John 17. The passage I'm covering today breaks two parts. Jesus prays for himself and Jesus prays for us. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. So an initial observation, we, it's important that we look at the time frame that Jesus seems to be operating in. John writes here, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Jesus has just been giving his disciples some intense teaching about himself about his father, about the Holy Spirit. Judas has left. It's a very intense time. And Jesus seems to be leaving temporality for a moment and speaking in a different sort of time frame. 
Now, you can go from anywhere from Einstein to the Marvel Cinematic Universe to see that time is confusing. And I'm not going to get into quantum mechanics this morning. It's way above my pay grade. But there does seem to be some eternal present that Jesus is speaking in. He speaks in a way that it seems like the events of the upper room and the events of Acts 1 that we just heard when he ascends into heaven are happening at once. And since today is Ascension Sunday, we can see in a special way how the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension form a meaningful picture of Jesus' true nature. And yet, Jesus is fully present with his disciples at the same time. It's incredible. As Jesus prays to the Father, there is a mysticism and an otherworldliness to the ideas here. And this is seen, as I've said, in the way that this present tense seems to cover things that haven't happened yet. But it also emerges in Jesus' choice of words. You may notice the prominence of one particular word in these first five verses. The word glory appears in one form or another five times. And I think it's impossible to reflect on this passage without thinking for a moment what glory means. If any one of us prayed like Jesus did here, we would rightfully be called out for speaking in blasphemous and inappropriate way. But no one would ever ask, no one would ask God to glorify us. But it's totally appropriate for Jesus to ask this. Why? Well, when thinking about glory in this context, I really think it's important to consider the Hebrew scriptures. The Greek word is doxa. And we all use that actually quite regularly. If you open to page 11 of your bulletin, you'll see it, since it's the word where we get the word doxology. But since Jesus was not speaking Greek to his disciples, thinking through what word he was probably thinking of is really important, and that word is the Hebrew word kavod. This word is the word that we use every time we think about the glory of the Lord coming on the temple or the tabernacle. But there's an important nuance to the word that brings it home for us in this context. The word can also mean honor. This same word is famously used in the Ten Commandments when we are asked to honor father and mother. And I say this as a way towards understanding because in our culture, in May and June, we see a lot of honoring going on. I'm looking around and I see faces that I've seen grown up. There's a lot of them here. There was more here than in the first service, for whatever reason. (laughs) And guess what they're going to do over the next month or so? They're going to put on colorful robes and hats. We're going to be playing pomp and circumstance. And I don't think anybody's going to say, what is the big deal? We recognize that the occasion and the work that they have done merits honor. Same in June with weddings. Never once have I been to a wedding where... During a bridal march, somebody stood up and said, hey, what is all the fuss about? The occasion warrants it. And we may not use the word glory, but there is an honoring and assigning of proper weight. So when it comes to the word glory, perhaps it's best to think about that glory ends up being that honor which we only give to God. And Jesus is asking his father to do that at this critical moment. These five verses sum up an important truth, both about the life and death of Jesus. This life and death, all of it, is a cooperative work between the father and the son. 
And the reason I brought the Lewis quote up earlier is that no one else should be saying what Jesus says in these five verses. Let's turn to the text. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. As I said, this is a cooperative work. In the Son's glory, the Father is glorified, and vice versa. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This glory is seen in the Son's work to give eternal life to those Jesus has been given. Jesus' work brings the Father glory. Verse 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, glorify, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Life is found in knowing God. The Father is glorified in the Son's work. And this is seen all throughout the scriptures. The incarnation is, is sort of the pinnacle. But G John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel, all things came into being by the word. Jesus the Father was glorified in that work. And all he could say at the end of the days was, this is good. And he is glorified in the work Jesus will do over the time from this prayer until the ascension. As he finishes the work the Father gave him, that brings honor to the Father. Verse 5, So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. This phrase really brings out the awareness Jesus has of who he is and what his proper place is. It speaks to the awareness Jesus has of the importance of his work. No one else can say this. Glorify me with the glory I had in your presence before the world existed. John loves talking about this. If we go back to John 1, 1, we see it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 8, 58, we see it. Before Abraham was, I am. As we move into the beginning of Jesus' prayer for his disciples in verse 6, remember who this person is who is praying for his disciples, for us. Jesus is openly saying to his father in front of the disciples, I existed in glory before any of this existed. It's incredible. So Jesus prays for us, his disciples. Verse 6, I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's really encouraging to me how highly Jesus speaks of his own followers here. Especially because of what we've seen and what we know about ourselves. We focus at times on the disciples' fallibility. And we don't do that because we like to watch people suffer. At least I hope not. We do it because we see ourselves in their fallibility. We are like them. And it comforts us that the people that Jesus called his disciples mess up. But look at what he says about them. He says that they are a possession of the Father and the Son. And he says that they have kept his word. How? 
How is this the case? How is he saying that they have kept his word? Again, I think there's a time issue here, time tense issue. But one place I saw that made me, gave some clarity to that is back in John 6, 668 through 69. At this stage, John, or John is recording the fact that Jesus is kind of driving people away with this strange teaching he has about consuming his flesh and blood. And everybody's left. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, are you going to go away too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples already at this stage have a faith that has taken root And Jesus here acknowledges that, even with the coming events. Verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. Verse 8, for the words that you gave to me, I have given to them. And they have received them and know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And there's this wonderful interplay here between father and son, the identification they have, though they are not the same. If we go back again in John's gospel to John 14, the apostle Philip has this interaction with Jesus. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? The remarkable cooperation between father and son here shows us some very tangible things about our invisible God. Verse 9, I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. There is a particular love depicted here that Jesus has for his followers. For his disciples. Clearly, God loves the whole world, a fact that John famously records earlier in his gospel when Jesus tells Nicodemus that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son for it. But Jesus still makes a distinction. D.A. Carson puts it like this, however wide is the love of God, however salvific the stance of Jesus toward the world, There is a peculiar relationship of love, joy, intimacy, disclosure, obedience, faith, dependence, joy, peace, blessing, and fruitfulness that binds the disciples together with the Godhead. And the comforting truth of this is that Jesus is extending this to us. (laughs) Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. He finds glory in the ministry of his disciples. Verse 11, And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. And this Brings us full circle back to the issue I started with, time, tense. Jesus is sitting with his disciples. How can he say he is not in the world? I think it reaches back to verse 1 when Jesus lifts his eyes to the heavens 
And this almost reminds me of the transfiguration minus the extraordinary white garments. Something is happening here whereby Jesus is both present with them and acknowledging his ascension and glorification. And he is praying for them and us. He knows that the world is dangerous and he wants his flock to be protected. We need him. We take comfort in him. It is a loving and compassionate teaching from this rabbi who called himself the Good Shepherd. He loves his flock. So this week, my wife Stephanie was preparing a Bible study on the book of Titus, and a conversation that we had ended up with me having to rework the last part of the sermon. <laughs> we started talking about Christ's hiddenness. Here's a couple of passages. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 2 through 3. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. John 17 shows us a Jesus who is at once with his disciples, asking for glory, yet still remains hidden. He asks to be glorified, and there's a sense in which he's asking to be revealed in a new way to his disciples. The Father answers that prayer. In the work he is about to do, Jesus is glorified. In verse 1, Jesus says that the hour has come, and then he asks to be glorified, and it is very easy to see this in the resurrection and the ascension. Those two moments in the life of Jesus scream glory. Rising from the dead and floating away into the clouds kind of scream that. But it's also seen in the crucifixion. But how could a death of shame contribute to that? Because Jesus, in cooperation with the Father and Holy Spirit, does this work. This passage makes clear that Jesus had a different role from the Father and the Spirit, but one cannot separate him from the Father and Spirit in this work. That's why there's glory in it. The passion, resurrection, and ascension are a cooperative work between the three members of the Godhead and reveal glory, their true nature. But even with those remarkable revelations, all that we've walked through over the last months, there's more to come. We wait still for Jesus to appear again and ultimately be revealed. That's why John's last great writing is called Revelation. We must realize that Jesus is with us, but is hidden. After all, Paul says our lives are hidden in Christ. But we still can take comfort because he's with us in his hiddenness and he still intercedes for us. He prays for all of us in today's passage. And Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus lives to intercede for us. While he remains hidden, we still seek him, follow him, and keep our eyes on him. As Jesus says in verse 11, we need protection in this world so that we can be unified in him.
I started off this uh, message today talking about some heroes. On Friday, another one of my heroes, Tim Keller, died. It's great to have people we can look up to in the faith, whether they are close to us or we can admire them from afar. The only time I ever acted, interacted with Tim Keller was a short Twitter uh, thing. I asked him a question. He was taking questions, and I asked him, where do you like to be in New York the most? And he said, home. <laughs> He's home now, y'all. He's home. I read this... Th- This week, from one of the last things he said was this, I am thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Jesus' glorious incarnation, his life, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension reveal his glory to us. But remember... This glorified Son of God is also praying for us, praying for us to reflect Him. Nothing matters more for us than our desire to see Jesus. He's with us, and we are written in His book of life. The three heroes I mentioned this morning are great models to me of people who wanted nothing more than just to be near Jesus. Let's take delight that we have life knowing Him. For we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. God, by whom the meek are guided in judgment and light rises up in darkness for the godly, grant us in all our doubts and uncertainties the grace to ask what you would have us do, that the spirit of wisdom may save us from all false choices that in your light we may see light, and in your straight path we may not stumble. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.